Good. So, good evening. Good evening. Welcome to those joining us from the other the other side of Bear Island and around the world. We have slowly begun to produce some haikus, which now might build into a great flood of haikus. But these are some nice ones we've just received. Rugged, hungry hill, rising sea to cloudy sky, solid, unmoving. Hungry Hill is the name of the hill just opposite us here on the mainland. Soft, misty rain clouds, landscape blurred into beauty, peace and serenity. Walking, eyes feasting on beauty, breaks in sound of water, busily flowing over rocks. Memory evoked, stillness in moment. Thank you. Yes. That line, breaks in sound of water, busily flowing over rocks, reminds me of the line in Keats, where he speaks about the, um, the, the sea, or the waves of the sea, at their priest-like task around the shores. And I was just doing the same thing. So I should... Oh, okay. Well, you can read it. No, you read it. You read it. You've got a louder voice than me. All right, here we go. Oops, now it disappeared. It really did disappear. Uh -oh. Uh, what did Maybe that's a sign. They think that I'll come back. The world is not ready for it yet. Oh, it's good. now the world is ready for it. Right, so. I was hoping you'd read it. A distant chirp, a cool whistling breeze, a burst of silence. Hmm. Very good. I'm glad you read it. Thank you. Good. So, so these haikus are a way of us to be in the present moment, to be awake, as Jesus asked his disciples in Gethsemane, as we saw this morning, to stay awake and pray, something he repeats several times in the Gospels. So the haiku is a little instrument to um, alert us to the fact that we could walk from one end of the island, lost in our thoughts, our plans, our worries, our fantasies and be completely unaware. We might just as well be walking down Fifth Avenue or Oxford's, Oxford Street. So there, we need these little reminders uh, and meditation is one of them. The mantra is one of them to remain awake in the present moment rather than lost in the past uh, feeding on the past memories or uh, dealing with our attempt to control the future, which, as we know, is a rather forlorn attempt most of the time. So, um, we've been looking today at this scene in the Passion narrative where Jesus uh, praise on the night before his, his death, 
uh, in the garden where he was accustomed to, to pray with his disciples. We see a combination of great anguish and loneliness and solitude. Each of them is a different kind of experience. And community, even though his companions weren't much good, much used to him, they were there and they wanted to be there and they would, would probably have liked to have stayed awake. So although they were not up to the task at that moment, they were there. So we see these different aspects and we see in the betrayal, the kiss of Judas, the, the dark side of this, uh, of this story and the dark side of our experience of community as well. So, um, and we looked this morning at this distinction that Simon Weil uh, helps us to understand between suffering and affliction. And one of the affliction is, is that kind of suffering that involves phys a physical dimension, which um, radically changes our place in the world, our relationship to everything in the world. It's often visible in the social degradation that um, people can be subjected to. Um, the way they are totally objectified, treated as a piece of property, for example, like slaves. So there's affliction, uh, which it is, it is very difficult to reach someone, to touch someone suffering in affliction. But there's also suffering, almost we might say more ordinary suffering, which can be very intense. And, uh, but when the suffering is over, we are relatively unchanged. Depends on, depends on how we deal with it. Tooth, toothache, for example, is a very unwelcome kind of suffering. Nobody wants it, and we want to be cured from it as quickly as possible. But once it's cured, we, we haven't really changed very deeply. We're just glad that it's over. And in many ways, the kinds of suffering that we go through in life have this transient value. Uh, we can learn from them. It teaches us many things, but it doesn't necessarily change us profoundly in the way or transform us. It may change us because we may decide to go to the dentist more regularly. So it may change us, but it doesn't transform us interiorly in the same way that uh, the affliction we have been talking about might do. The message or the reality we see described in Jesus' suffering and maybe the beginning of his affliction, maybe affliction is much rarer than we think in some ways and for some people. Um, we see him experiencing a distance 
the distance between himself and those he was closest to. They were not there for him fully when he needed them. And even the beginning of a distance between himself and his father, that source of being that he calls affectionately Abba, the one who is the personal ground of his being. Affliction is the absolute distance between ourselves and the world and ourselves and God. And the message, the ultimate message of the passion narrative is that this experience of distance or alienation or estrangement, which we dread, we, we, we dread this loneliness, this sort of existential separation, that this, even on the cross where we see it reaching its extreme form, why have you forsaken me? This distance does not ultimately condemn us to separation from God, from our, from our true self, from that personal ground of being. And what bridges that distance is love. And that's why it's important for us when, when we, as we move more deeply into the Holy Week narrative, we reflect upon the suffering of Jesus, that we don't imagine that suffering is the real message. Suffering is the, is the, the medium, in a way. But the message is what? What is the message? Love, isn't it? John Main once said, when we look at the cross, we shouldn't immediately say we are saved by the suffering of Christ, but we are saved by the love of Christ or the love of God expressed in this tragic and beautiful symbol. And on Good Friday, when we venerate the cross, we voluntarily come forward to kiss the cross or venerate it. Um, that is what we are affirming, really, is the mystery of something that is both horrific and terrible and tragic, at the same time deeply reassuring and healing and consoling. As with the whole of the gospel, we, we enter into the meaning of these symbols and the meaning of these stories through paradox, not just by rational analysis. We have to accept the fact that the cross is both terrible and lovable. So it is love that transcends this distance. And our own experience of human relationships points this out to us. Um, maybe one day, uh, even science will express it, the power of love to, to bridge, to reconnect that uh, what has been separated, alienated. Uh, a film, a science fiction film that came out recently, uh, 
called Interstellar has this as its, its message. Uh, it's a, a kind of updated version of um, Space uh, 2001, a space odyssey, if you remember that. And the science has been updated as well. So what it is um, addressing is the, is the, uh, the challenge of uh, the vastness of the universe. How do we travel? How do we relate to something that is so totally distant from us, infinitely distant from us? And there are various scientific explanations which I can't describe fully because I don't understand them fully. But the, the basic drama of the, of the story is the discovery by the hero who has left his daughter behind on Earth um, while he went off to save the world uh, through different dimensions of space and time that he comes back. He comes back to her and he is now the same age as when he left and she has aged and has produced new generations of the family. But he comes back to her and what made this happen was, according to the story, the uh, combination or the use of two forces in the universe that um, are supreme, or that, that, are un, that uh, transcend or run through all the many dimensions of reality. And we're talking here about parallel universes and everything else. So the unimaginable distances and the unimaginable parallelisms of reality, the dimensions of reality. And these two forces are gravity, gravity is a universal force, and love. So maybe one day we will, we will be able scientifically to describe uh, how love transcends the dimensions of space and time. But even before we have any scientific evidence of that or explanation of that, we have our own experience. We know that even death, the death of one we love, does not end the love or the sense of connection, of real connection. There is at first this anguish of separation one of the greatest sufferings we can go through is to lose somebody we love. And yet, that suffering heals over time. Grief reduces its, its sort of edge or its intensity or its, and its physical effect. So grief, it isn't that you then forget the person. You don't forget them. They don't disappear from your memory. You may not be able to recall what they look like even. C.S. Lewis in his 
beautiful little memoir of grief when after his wife of just a few years died um, he wrote a book called A Grief Observed and it's a, it's a beautiful honest description of the grieving process and at one point he, you know, he said he had a picture or pictures of her all around the place and uh, because he, he was beginning to forget what she looked like, what she felt like, what she smelt like. And uh, so he had the, the photos there to remind him, to stimulate his imagination. And then he decided, he realized this was idolatry. You know, and it was, not, it was not her. And so he put, well, I didn't say he put all the pictures away, but anyway, he ceased to depend upon the pictures. And because he had moved into another dimension of relationship and that apparently infinite distance that death creates between those who love each other had been, is bridged, is bridged by love. The love, many waters cannot extinguish love. Love is more powerful than death. These are phrases from the scriptures, but they are real experiences of anyone who has gone through it. And we see it also in friendship. Um, there are two aspects of friendship. Um, one is meeting, and the other is separation. And most friends, um, I mean, it's true also of those who live together, of, or, you know, in, in a marriage or in a community. Um, they spend a lot of time together. But there is always this systole and diastole, you know, the, the beating of the heart. There is the, the coming together and the separation. And in both of them, there is the experience of friendship, of intimacy, of relationship, of recognition, of being anointed by the other. There's another paradox. Sometimes it's separation that even makes us feel closer to the person. We look forward to the meeting but even when you are separate, separated, and there's only Skype between you, then there is, uh, there is the knowledge of relationship, of connection, of love. Because <clears throat> Emily Dickinson put it very succinctly, and she said something like, I think it was her anyway. Um, what is it? Something is all we need to know. No, not quite. Keep going. No. Separ uh, hmm. Something like separation is all. Oh no, I think uh, something like separation is all we need to know of heaven. No, is all we know of heaven and all we need to know of hell. 
Okay. And this paradox is also uh, embodied in the Eucharist when we break the bread, the fraction of the host, at the, um, at, the annual, at the Lamb of God. Before communion, it's very strange that we should break this host into two at the moment where we are sharing it, offering it to each other as our way of, of being one. One with him, one with each other. And the same is, um, I mean, anyone who's been separated and marriage or friends over time and they connect by internet, uh, long distance relationships, um, will will have learned this, whether they've reflected on it, it's another matter, but they, we learn it in these ways. And meditation teaches us the same thing, the same thing that Jesus plunged into in Gethsemane, that there is a combination or there is a paradoxical relationship between solitude and community. When we meditate alone, in our, on our own in the morning or the evening at home or on a plane or wherever. You know, I often meditate on a, on a plane or when I'm traveling, I meditate, try, try to meditate at the same times uh, when I'm traveling. So I might be the only person on, on the 747 that's meditating. Um, but I'm not, I don't feel that I'm meditating alone. I'm in solitude because uh, I could, it's only I can meditate for myself. No one can meditate for me. Um, but I never feel alone. I don't feel lonely in that solitude. And I think when we are in solitude, when we are accepting our own unique condition, human condition, or the unique manifestation of the human condition that I am, that I live with, when we accept that and we don't run away from it, we don't distract ourselves from it or even the suffering that it may bring, then it's the, it's the end of loneliness. We'll come back to this question of loneliness in a minute. So in meditation, when we meditate alone, in solitude, we don't feel lonely. And similarly, when we meditate in community with other people, we recognize that we are solitary. That we, each one of us, as a unique manifestation of the divine, each one of us has to be faithful to, to ourselves, to that manifestation. Each one of us has to say the mantra, listen to the mantra, sound the mantra, be led into the silence uh, in our own unique way. But accepting that uniqueness, that solitude, is actually also the other, leads us to the other side of the coin, which is that we are not 
alone. We are in relationship. And it's this, it's this daily experience of, 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 uh, of paradox. This, these are not abstract ideas. These are things we live in, in our human relationships uh, every day or different phases of our lives. Uh, this is what helps us to understand the, the, the meaning of Gethsemane and the meaning of the, of the passion narrative and the light that it sheds on our human journey. We could even say that affliction, the worst we could imagine of human suffering, is an essential aspect of divine love. Not an accident or something added to the human condition, but something that takes us into the deepest mystery. In the uh, film Interstellar, uh, the, the breakthrough comes and he's trying to get back into his own time and own dimension, back to Earth. Um, the only way he can do it is to fly into a black hole, uh, which no one has done before. So in a way, we have to go into the black hole, which in this story is death. But by, in, in, in every meditation, we do this, not quite so dramatically, but we, do, we are dying to ourselves every time we meditate. John Main said that when we meditate each time, we enter into the Paschal mystery, the dying and the rising of, of Christ. So what does that mean? It's not an imaginary uh, experience. It is what we actually do as we take the attention off ourselves, as we become other-centered, as we renounce or let go of, voluntarily, um, all the attachments that we have carried with us for 50 years or all the attachments that we have the new attachments that we built up since the last time we meditated. Our worries, our anxieties, the ups and downs of our relationships. So all of the attachments that we cling to, that cling to us, we let go. And what is death except the dropping of all attachments and discovering what is left? So what is left when you have really sold everything you have and given to the poor? And that is the radicality of the mantra, the radic radicality of, of meditation itself. The poverty of spirit, which is the first of the Beatitudes. The poverty of the cross. So, it makes sense to say that every time we meditate, we are dying to ourselves and we don't know where we're going, just as we don't know for sure what it's going to be like after death. So, <coughs> so it is, we are even renouncing our expectations or our, all the conditions we have. So we say, okay, I'll, I'll be, 
uh, I'll, I'll renounce everything, um, but can you tell me what I'm going to get back? This is what St. Peter said to Jesus. Look, we've given up everything for you. So what about us? What are we going to get back for this? And actually, Jesus is quite gentle with them. He doesn't say, you know, nothing. He says, you get everything. Everything that you more, actually, than you could want or imagine. But so we need that affirmation that this is not uh, a meaningless risk. But nevertheless, it's still a, a, a kind of a knife edge or a cliff edge moment where every time we say the mantra with full attention, we are making this renunciation. We are voluntarily allowing ourselves to die. And this, interestingly, is how we see Jesus in the Passion narrative handling his ordeal. We don't see him as a victim who's being pushed around and humiliated. I mean, he is being pushed around and humiliated. But that's not how we see him, because we see him from within. And what, what it appears in the Gospel story is that he is laying down his life. It's not being taken away from him. One of, the, one of the scripture passages actually says that. He did not have his life taken away. But he is, he, although he's under compulsion and under duress and under God, he, he nevertheless, he's in a place from which he can lay down his life. There's a mysterious uh, verse in the book of Revelation which gives a kind of cosmic meaning to this. The, because of the identification of the sacrifice of Jesus, the self-offering of Jesus in this way, with, the, uh, with Passover, uh, where the lamb was sacrificed, a lamb or lambs were sacrificed, uh, in the temple, Jesus is, is symbolized as a lamb, an innocent lamb that is being sacrificed. Um, you have to be careful, that's a metaphor, we don't, it's not that kind of uh, financial sacrifice that, that gets our credit card debt um, written off. Uh, that's how we've sometimes interpreted this language. We have to be careful we don't go back to that idea of redemption as God demanding this bloody sacrifice in order to forgive us, forgive, forgive Adam and Eve. Um, so we have to be sharp about that. But this symbolism is very powerful. And in the book of Revelation, it, uh, there is a verse 13, verse, chapter 13, verse 8, where it says that all who dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the Lamb is slain from the foundation of the world, from the very beginning, from before 
time and space, or at the moment that time and space came into existence. So it takes us for a moment into this, um, this, this, the, the deepest meaning of, of what the, the death, the suffering and the death of Jesus, which he voluntarily enters into and gives, what is what the, the meaning of that uh, cosmically? And if we peer deep into the black hole of God, you know, this sacrifice is taking place in the very heart of love. So sacrifice is not destruction. It is the gift of self. What greater gift or sacrifice can we make? But, and again, this may sound sort of theological or philosophical, but it's really reflected in our human psychology that we are able and willing to sacrifice ourselves for those we love. This is a verse from the Upanishad. I'm sure I read this earlier. I did read it earlier, one second. Um, Oh, yes. So, the, the, there are quite a lot of references in the Upanishads to sacrifice. But sacrifice is understood interiorly now in the Upanishads. This is one of the great shifts of consciousness that took place in what historians sometimes call the Axial Age, a period about 500 years or so before Christ. And during this relatively short period, this was the age of the Buddha, the age of the Hebrew prophets, the age of the Upanishads, the age of Plato and um, Lao Tzu. So this cross-culturally, this shift in consciousness took place, the discovery of the inner world and a re-evaluation of what religion meant. Uh, and the idea of sacrifice shifted from external sacrifice, sacrificing the lamb in order to keep God happy or sacrificing your son uh, in order to placate uh, the gods and get a good harvest. So instead of this idea of external sacrifice as part of a way of controlling the world, it became interiorized and the inner journey and meditation became the focal point of sacrifice. Is this what I was saying earlier? The, the way we, we lay down our life or the way we take the attention of ourselves. There's no violence in this sacrifice. There's no blood on the, on the ground. Um, so sacrifice, so the Upanishads, which is this Mundaka Upanishad, which is in the 
you know, the, the, on the wave of this new consciousness, um, speaks like the Hebrew prophets about external sacrifice. Hosea says, or has God say, what I want is mercy, not sacrifice. And this is, what, this is really what God wants. In the same way, uh, the Upanishads here speak about the danger of thinking that you will achieve the truth or liberation simply through external ritual. So let me just give you a little example of it. Um, he's not saying that you shouldn't have the rituals, but he's saying understand what the rituals mean. Uh, let me see. If a man begins his sacrifice when the flames are luminous and considers for the offerings the signs of heaven, then the holy offerings lead him on the rays of the sun where the Lord of all gods has his high dwelling. So this is the effectiveness of ritual. But... And when on the rays of sunlight the radiant offerings raise him, then they glorify him in words of melody. Welcome, they say, welcome here. Enjoy the heaven of Brahma, won by pure holy actions. But unsafe are the boats of sacrifice to go to the farthest shore. So don't think you're going to get across to Castletown Bear on the boat of sacrifice. It won't take you all the way. Unsafe are the 18 books where the lower actions are explained. So study and, the, 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 and, and, and knowledge and thought uh, are unsafe. The unwise who praise them as the highest end go to old age and death again. So, to, to rely upon these external forms of sacrifice or knowledge um, binds us to a cycle in which we repeat the same mistakes. We never get over to the other shore, to the further shore. Abiding in the midst of ignorance, so he's quite strong here, just as Jesus was very strong when he condemned the whited sepulchres of, <coughs> of his religious tradition. Abiding in the midst of ignorance, but thinking themselves wise and learned, fools aimlessly go hither and thither like blind led by the blind. Wandering in the paths of unwisdom, we have attained the end of life think the foolish. So religious people who think that they have got salvation, that they've got what they, you know, what they wanted. Clouds of passion concealed to them the beyond. So they just can't see beyond the clouds or the, the miasma of their own uh, attachments, and sad is their fall when the reward of their pious actions has been enjoyed. So in other words, 
you get something out of all of this ritual and externalism in religion, or other things as well, maybe. You get a certain amount of satisfaction and fulfillment, but it's not sustainable. It runs out after a while, and there is nothing sadder than that. Well, that's what St. Paul experienced. Uh, he, was, he got a lot out of his period as a Taliban uh, Pharisee, persecuting the Christians, and then it snapped, and he lost it all in, that, in his Damascus moment. Imagining that religious ritual and gifts of charity as the final good, so all you've got to do is go to the temple and, and give little gifts that you can afford, Imagining religious ritual and gifts of charity as the final good, the unwise do not see the path supreme. So they just don't see the path. Indeed, they have in high heaven the reward of their pious actions, but thence they fall and come to earth or even down to the lower regions. But those who in purity and faith live in the solitude of the forest, who have wisdom and peace and do not long for earthly possessions, those in radiant purity pass through the gates of the sun to the dwelling place supreme where the spirit is in eternity. So we only have to understand what he means here by the solitude of the forest. And that does not necessarily mean going to the Himalayas or to a monastery. It is essentially discovering that, that forest, uh, the solitude of the forest is in our daily meditation. So, <clears throat> So we see Jesus going through, or beginning to go through now, in Gethsemane, this black hole, without the companionship he would have liked and relied upon, facing the fear of death, which is a form of suffering, just the fear of death. We normally repress it, unless it's thrust in our face. Um, St. Benedict, and indeed all, all of the monastic traditions, emphasize the value of memento mori, being reminding yourself of your mortality. And that can become a bit morbid. I remember once sitting in the office of a, a Buddhist abbot in Thailand and looking around the room and <laughs> seeing these very gruesome pictures of cadavers and road accidents and so on. And uh, I thought this is a strange, then of course I realized that it was, he used, he used them as as, um, I mean, I think if you went in to see your parish priest and he had those pictures up, you'd probably call the bishop. But, um, he, so he, he, uh, he, he uses them, used them as, no doubt, as teaching aids uh, to re remind the younger monks of their mortality. So it can become a little gruesome, 
But St. Benedict says, who's not gruesome at all, St. Benedict says, keep death constantly before your eyes. And the purpose of that is so that you can live without being dominated or controlled by the repressed fear of death. And that when death comes or when you meet it in, in life, other people or those you love die even, you are able to, to face it and to embrace it um, without, um, without such terror. So it's a preparation. And we could almost say that one of the effects of meditation, because remember meditation is giving us a little taste of death every time, detachment, letting go, so we're slowly, gradually becoming familiar with death through meditation. And so one of the things you'll find is that the fear of death that may be lingering in you will diminish. And many people have this as a very deeply repressed fear. So, we see Jesus in a way lonely, in, in solitude, embracing his own unique destiny, but also we see him lonely uh, in Gethsemane and later abandoned uh, by those, even abandoned by those who uh, he would like to have been with him. We don't see Jesus depressed. Loneliness is a major cause of depression in our culture. So, so major a phenomenon now that they've even appointed in Britain a minister for loneliness, um, who I hope is a very sociable person. <laughs> Otherwise it would make everybody depressed. Um, but it's a phenomenon of our age of virtual reality, of Facebook friendship, and of instant communication, that people feel, and young people especially, feel lonely to a degree and intensity that is something of an epidemic. The cure for loneliness is solitude. It's not going out every night or going to the disco every night or joining innumerable online groups even. It's, uh, it's embracing one's own unique destiny and oneself as a manifestation uniquely of the of the divine. So loneliness, uh, such a plague of our uh, culture, one of the uh, afflictions of, of affluence that we have, we have released, um, has many symptoms, the loss of interest in life, the loss of joy, uh, a feeling of guilt, of shame, 
uh, of self-worth, of being constantly distracted, unable to focus, to pay attention, physically and mentally tired, sleepiness of mind. And this can be triggered by a trauma or by a financial problem or by bullying. It also seems to be even to have a genetic uh, um, aspect to it as well. It makes us more prone to loneliness and depression. And there are many, there are mild and severe forms of, de of depression. Um, so we see Jesus lonely in Gethsemane and in the next scenes of his passion, but we don't see him depressed. And so he begins this journey now after the Last Supper, the night of prayer in Gethsemane. He's, he's, he's begun in prayer. The prayer of the meal, which was the religious ritual, gave us the Eucharist, of course, and the, the prayer in solitude in the desert, where he returned three times in the, in the garden of Gethsemane in the forest uh, to uh, pray using the same words as before. But he ends that scene of Gethsemane with a very uh, up, almost upbeat uh, uh, cry. He, when he finds the disciples sleeping, he says, up, forward, the time has come. Now we've, we've, just, we've got to do this. We've, we have to go into it. And this isn't false bravado. This is something has changed in him from that fear and trembling on the broken heart that he expressed at the beginning. He has come through to a place of of peace and a place of uh, confidence. So, let's take a few, a couple of minutes again to uh, maybe have some music. And then if you want to just prepare now for the meditation.